0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Good evening. Welcome to the 2012 Horace M. Albright Lecture in Conservation. I'm Keith Gillis, Dean of the College of Natural Resources, and a professor of forest economics here at Berkeley. The Horace Albright Lecture Series has been going strong at Berkeley for more than 50 years, and it's a wonderful tribute to the memory of Horace Albright and his achievements in his life. Uh, Given that this is a Berkeley crowd and and we, we care about the outdoors, many of you probably know that Horace Albright, more than anyone else, is the person we're indebted to for the creation of the National Park System. Uh, one, of, one of Berkeley's many contributions over the years, to parks. <laughs> I think we've got a really interesting program for you this evening, and uh, I have to give credit to see Silverstein sitting in the front row for the idea because he grabbed me as I was coming back from my every three-hour coffee fix at Free Speech and said, Keith... You need to do one of these on the farm bill. And I said, that's a good idea. And so we're here tonight thanks to that suggestion. Um, So we've got a great group of panelists here uh, with different and unique perspectives about what's working or not working with U.S. agricultural policy. Our first panelist was going to be Dr. Pat Crawford, the director of Berkeley's Atkins Center for Weight and Health, uh, a national leader in the fight against childhood obesity. Unfortunately, a family issue prevents Pat from being with us tonight, so if you saw her name on the poster, but we're very, very grateful that her close friend and colleague, Ken Hecht, has graciously agreed to take her place on the panel tonight. Uh, Ken practiced law for over 15 years with the San Francisco Legal Assistance Foundation, San Francisco Legal Aid Society. He co-founded two law reform litigation offices, the Youth Law Center and the Employment Law Center. Uh, Following his uh, public interest legal career, he co-founded California Food Policy Advocates, a statewide nonprofit nutrition policy and advocacy organization with a mission of improving the health and well-being of low-income Californians by increasing their access to nutritious, affordable food. Uh, from 1992 till his retirement last month, Ken served as the California Food Policy Advocates Executive Director, and under his leadership, the organization became a leading advocate for utilizing federal food programs uh, in order to prevent hunger, food insecurity, and childhood obesity. Uh, welcome, Ken. Thanks so much for filling in for Pat. We very much appreciate it. Uh, Michael Pollan probably needs mo- no introduction for many of you. He's the author of several New York Times bestsellers and uh, Food Rules, and Eater's Manual, In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto, The Botany of Desire, The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals. Uh, for the last 25 years, he's been writing books and articles about the place where our nature and culture intersect in on our plates in our farms in gardens and in the built environment. And he's currently the John S. and James L. Knight Professor of Journalism uh, here at Berkeley and the director of the Knight Program in Science and Environmental Journalism at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Michael, and thank you for being here tonight.
2: Thank you, Steve.
1: Uh, karen ross is the secretary of the california department of food and agriculture she was appointed to that position by governor jerry brown in january of two thousand eleven Secretary Ross has deep roots in the agricultural community. She's held a number of prominent leadership positions, both in California and in the nation's capital. Uh, Prior to her appointment uh, here in California, most recently, uh, Secretary Ross was chief of staff to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Uh, Before that, she served for more than 13 years as the president of the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. She grew up as a 4-H kid in western Nebraska, where she and her husband still own 800 acres Acres of the family farm, where her younger brother, a fourth-generation farmer, grows dryland wheat, sunflowers, uh, feed grains, and cattle. Welcome, Karen. You. Glad you could be here tonight. Our last panelist, Ken Cook, president and co-founder of Environmental Working Group, is widely recognized as one of the environmental community's most prominent and effective critics of the status quo in U.S. farm policy. Uh, Cook was a principal architect of the landmark conservation provisions of the 1985 Farm Bill, which attempted to shift U.S. farm policy towards greater emphasis on the conservation of land, water, wetlands, and wildlife. Uh, Being a professor of forestry, I can get into that. Uh, our moderator for this evening, oh I'm sorry and thank you very much for being no, no, Our moderator for this evening will be Professor Gordon Rouser of the Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. Uh, Gordon is the Robert Gordon Sproul Distinguished Professor of Agricultural Economics here at Berkeley and served twice as the chair of our Department of Agricultural and Resource Economics. The department's recent number one ranking by the National Research Council is in no small measure a legacy uh, to his leadership as the department's chair and later as the dean of the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources from 1994 to 2000. He's made very important contributions to the literature in the areas of development and agricultural economics, uh, plant biotechnology, renewable energy, commodities market functioning, and many other areas. He has also served as the chief economist for the U.S. Agency for International Development and was a senior economist on President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. Gordon, thank you so much for agreeing to serve as the moderator for this exchange. Please, as I give the podium to Gordon, give a warm welcome to all of our speakers and our (laughs) moderators.
0: Before we begin the symposium, just a few words so that we all understand the history of the Farm Bill. Beginning in the 1930s, during the Great Depression and the first Roosevelt administration, the first Farm Bill was implemented, and it was designed to accomplish two objectives. One to raise commodity prices, and second to raise incomes for farmers throughout the United States. And it did so by focusing on just a few commodities, food grains, feed grains, dairy, surprisingly tobacco, and peanuts. And it turned out over the years that those commodity groups, because they were at the public trough, receiving huge subsidies, acquired great political power. And in acquiring that power, but for our Constitution, namely, each state having two senators, particularly the Midwestern states, they otherwise would not have been able to sustain the Farm Bill over the course of the last almost 80 years. To give you some flavor for the different bills that have been passed over the last 20 or so years, and they're passed, by the way, every four or five years, in 1985, the bill was titled the Food Security Act. In 1990, it was entitled the Food, Agriculture, Conservation and Trade Act of 1990. In 1996, it was entitled the Federal Agricultural Improvement and Reform Act. In 2002, it was entitled the Farm Security and Rural Investment Act and then finally, the most recent bill that was passed by Congress and signed by the President was the Food, Conservation, and Energy Act of 2008. And you can see each time it's passed, it reflects the current flavor of public discourse. But in each and every interest, in, instant, even though we refer to it as the Farm Bill, if you look at the last bill, it's actually a food bill. And the reason of food bill is the total expenditures for the five years of the 2008 bill amounted to $400 billion. We're not talking about chump chain. We're talking about real resources. And that $400 billion, over 75%, to be precise, 77% of it goes to food and nutrition, and in particular, the new SNAP program. So, with that background, let's turn it over to our panelists, and we'll begin with you, Ken. I go, let me
3: just show that, (laughs) Ken. (laughs) Which which gives me a
4: perfect segue into where where I wanted to start. I had been uh, told I was going to go last, Uh, and then this afternoon I got a a message saying no, I was going to go first, and I wondered why they would want to put the nutrition people first, and it may have something to do with the number that you just heard.
0: It has to do with that. May I interrupt? It has to do with that and the fact that we want to look at the endpoint with regard to consumers and nutrition and stretch all the way through the entire system, ultimately to can Cook with regard to environmental and natural resource inputs into the production of food.
4: My real suspicion is that it was because Horace Albright lived from 1890 to 1987, so he must have had a really good nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> I did want also to say a word about uh, Pat Crawford, for whom I'm really happy to, uh, to pinch hit. Uh, Pat and the Center for Weight and Health uh, are an extraordinary jewel here at the university. Uh, The center really is the preeminent center for research that's driving policy uh, on nutrition generally and obesity prevention in particular. And they have their fingerprints all over some recent legislation uh, on child nutrition and other things, both state and federal level. It's just an extraordinary resource with which California Food Policy Advocates has worked very closely and enormously productively, and I just can't say enough good things about it. I want to briefly describe the SNAP program and then give you four reasons why it deserves to be preserved, protected, and expanded. Uh, First of all, nomenclature. Uh, As you all probably know, it was a food stamp program for a long time, but as there are no more coupons, uh, the stamp word seemed odd, so they uh, chose To rename the program SNAP, we did focus groups on each of those four words that goes to make up the acronym, uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And in focus group after focus group, English or Spanish-speaking, no one liked any one of those words. But we have a SNAP program. Uh, In in California, it's called CalFresh, which I like a lot better. And uh, it tends to give you some sense of the connection of nutrition to, uh, to health, and that's what we're trying to do. The ZNAP program is an enormous success. Uh, in the late 60s, as late as the late 60s, uh, there was severe hunger and malnutrition in the United States, and these days it's very rare. The food stamp program doesn't take the entire credit for it, but it takes a lot of the credit. So we start with that premise, or at least I do, that it is an enormous boon to our country. It is a program of nutrition assistance, our largest nutrition assistance program, uh, and it's for households and individuals living at very low income, at, a, at 130% of the federal poverty line, which is roughly $29,000 a year for a family of four. Uh, and the purpose uh, is to help those families reach a nutritionally adequate diet. It's important to point out that the SNAP program is an entitlement program. That means that that there are benefits there for as many people as qualify. And what that means in a period of economic recession and deep unemployment that we've been experiencing and continue to experience, that program can expand and is available for all the people who need it. You can buy whatever food you want. The benefit is set to a thing called the Thrifty Food Plan, which uh, was calculated many years ago to just about keep you going. And the average benefit uh, these days is about $150 per person per month. A profile of the participants. I apologize if it's too many numbers, but I think they do round out a picture. 50% of the households are working households. 75% of the households are households with children. 50% of the recipients of SNAP benefits are children. 93% are below poverty, and 55% of the households live below half of poverty. About 50% of the people who participate in the program are on for less than a year, and then they go off. Now, I want to give you four reasons to support the program, and I called them the four E's. First E, enormous. As you heard, it's nearly 80% of the farm bill, which is $78 billion in 2011. 92% of that went into benefits. 8% went into administration. And there are currently 46.5 million people uh, as of January 2012 on the food stamp program, and that means one in seven Americans. It is just about the same number, interestingly, as the number of people who are unemployed and underemployed. Number 2E is essential. As I mentioned earlier, it, uh, it is targeted well toward the lowest-income people in our country, And the U.S. Census Bureau uh, estimated, I think in 2010, that it it was keeping 5 million people above the poverty line. It greatly reduces severe hunger, as I mentioned. 25% of the participants completely use up all their benefits in the first week of the month. The calorie intake is 10 to 15% lower at the end of the month than it is at the beginning of the month. And a very interesting study that Peter Orszag just mentioned a couple of days ago in, uh, in the Bloomberg, uh, whatever that's called, system. You wouldn't know what that's called, that Bloomberg thing. Bloomberg News. Thank you. Uh, school discipline among SNAP participating children increases by 50% in the last week of the month. Just extraordinary. And uh, he attributes it, uh, although the study really didn't go into into attribution, to either simply less food or additional stress in the household. The third E is effectiveness. There are 1.3 million children who are getting enough to eat because of this program. That is to say that it avoids all those consequences of food insecurity that we all know about. Lack of adequate nutrition, lack of adequate health, lack of academic opportunity and performance, lack of social development. At the same time, it helps people to avoid the consequences of obesity. As we all know, a growing population in this country and around the world and the obesity-related disease that nutrition is helping to prevent is currently calculated at $147 billion per year nationally. The program, as I mentioned earlier, is counter-cyclical, and that means that the program helps not only the people who are participating, but the rest of the people in the community. There is a USDA estimate that a dollar of benefits uh, Translates into $1.79 of economic activity for our communities. And at the same time, program errors are at an all-time low, less than 2%. The fourth E, which is a stretch, is improve. <laughs> I just want to make sure you're listening. And I would start the improving part with what we always hear, but I think is important. Do no harm. The program's working. It's working for people who desperately need it. It's the largest element of the social safety net in this country, and we can't afford to jeopardize it. There was a proposal to the super committee, if you remember back before the end of 2011, I guess, uh, to chop $4 billion uh, off of the uh, SNAP program. But no matter how you calculate it, it's either going to reduce benefits or it's going to reduce the number of participants, and that ain't a good thing. The ways in which the program could be improved, I think, in addition to expanding participation, there are only about two-thirds of the people in the country who are eligible are participating. And in California, it's roughly 50%. So there are an enormous number of people who need the program who aren't receiving the benefits of it. Some of those reasons can be fixed. It would be simple to tie... Uh, application to the Affordable Care Act programs to the nutrition programs. There's no reason why those two shouldn't be hooked and so that someone who's going to have to apply for uh, medical insurance is also going to get nutrition insurance. There are simplifications that can occur in the process uh, of applying and of retaining benefits, and those would not be difficult these days. More importantly, I think, the program needs to promote its connection to nutrition and health. Uh, We are eager, therefore, for the program to be as closely tied to the Affordable Care Act as possible and to capitalize on all of the money that's available uh, for nutrition as a prevention uh, device. There, There couldn't be a better one in terms of medical care. Finally, I would mention that there is a small element uh, in the uh, in the Farm Bill for fresh fruit and vegetable snack program at school, uh, which is working very well. Peter Orzag mentioned that in terms of talking about violence at school, that the violence did not increase uh, anywhere near as it did without uh, the fresh fruit and vegetable program in the schools that had that program. So if kids could just get a snack of something decent to eat in the afternoon, all kinds of good things happen. So there's room to improve uh, w- within the food stamp program, as well, there are proposals for incentives for fresh fruit and vegetables, which we would love to see uh, put into the put into operation to make sure that that program continues to meet the pro- the problems that the country has in terms of nutrition, which these days are not simply food insecurity, but obesity as well. Thanks. Thank you, Ken.
2: Michael, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, There are two ways, it seems to me, to think about the Farm Bill, um, which really are, I mean, going beyond SNAP to uh, the the full range. It really is the rules of the game of the American food system. And rules are very important. They dictate outcomes. Um, And so you can... There's a Washington way of looking at the Farm Bill where it's very easy to get lost in the weeds. There are, there are people here who know a lot about the Farm Bill. I venture to say they don't know everything about the Farm Bill. There are parts of it they don't understand. It's really complex. Um, and there are people who know a lot more about it than I do, certainly, um, which is why I'm going to look at it in a slightly different way not a Washington way, a Martian's way of looking at the Farm Bill. What would a Martian make of this piece of legislation, or this food system for that matter? Um, And I would argue the Farm Bill needs such a perspective because it doesn't have any perspective now. It's just this big contraption with parts, some of which make sense, some of which make no sense, but very few refer to any set of clear public objectives or goals. So I want to talk about a big idea, and maybe later we can talk about some smaller ideas. A Martian's way of telling the story of the U.S. food system is that these earthlings in the late 20th century dramatically changed their diet. They went from eating the products of sunlight produced by photosynthesis to eating the products of fossil fuel. Uh, And you can kind of prove this with a simple statistic. Before 1940, uh, a single calorie of fossil fuel energy, and remember, a calorie is just a measurement of energy. It can be in your diet. It can be in your car. Um, One calorie of fossil fuel energy introduced into a farming system produced 2.3 calories of food energy, a net gain of 1.3 calories. That is the free lunch, the free lunch of photosynthesis. After years of uh, industrialization, uh, abetted by the Farm Bill's policies, um, we went to a system where today it takes, on the average, 10 calories of fossil fuel energy to produce one calorie of food energy. Um, when you say a system is unsustainable, that's a pretty tight definition that you're putting in nine extra calories to get that one. Uh, And if you're talking about eating something like feedlot meat, it's 55 calories of fossil fuel energy to get one calorie of beef. Um, How did that happen? Well, it's too long a story really to go into here in great detail, but as we industrialized our agriculture, and and that was driven by um, the desire to increase yields at all costs, we basically replaced solar energy with fossil fuel in the form of fertilizers, in the form of pesticides, in the form of farm equipment. Uh, We also took our animals off a diet of sunlight in the form of grass and put them on big feedlots where they could eat oil too. Now this system of eating oil works really well by certain measures. You can produce a lot of food this way and we got to a point with the industrialization of agriculture where a single farmer could feed 148 Americans. Great achievement. Um, These are the most productive humans who have ever lived. Um, But as we know, it has costs. Um, The food system, based on oil, consumes more fossil fuel than any other use except cars. It contributes hugely to greenhouse gases, between 20 and 30 percent, which is sort of what you'd expect from a race of oil eaters. And the sort of food you can make from oil, as you might guess, tends to be unhealthy. What you can make a lot of is, are these commodity crops that, as Gordon told us, are the, the principal recipients of our, of our subsidies. Uh, lots of corn and soy and wheat and rice um... the corn and soy in particular are what we turn into fast food and processed food. corn and soy are the building blocks of fast food the corn becomes the high fructose corn syrup and the feed for the animals the soy becomes the hydrogenated oil in which the french fries are fried and also feed for the animals It is the reason, and the Farm Bill and the rules of the Farm Bill are implicated in this, that the least healthy calories in the supermarket are the um, cheapest, and that the healthiest calories, things like fresh fruit and produce, are uh, much more expensive. this oil diet has contributed to obesity and diabetes, and in fact, is bankrupting our health care system. The food system, when you hear the terms "healthcare crisis," or "healthcare cost crisis," what you need to hear is "crisis of the food system," because three quarters of the money we spend to treat. Uh, healthcare, treat disease, goes to treating chronic diseases, preventable chronic diseases. And though not all of them are linked to diet, most of them are. What kills us today, by and large, are chronic diseases linked to the diet. So these cheap food policies, the effort to basically turn oil into food and give us lots of quantity, has succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. Um, And our farmers gave us what we wanted when that was what we wanted, lots of cheap food. They obliged brilliantly. They innovated. Um, They figured out how to get hundreds of bushels of corn off a field, off an acre. But we realize now, partly because fossil fuel is running out, partly because our food system is making us sick, that we can't go on eating oil. We need to keep it for other uses. Especially because in farming we have this incredible special dispensation, photosynthesis. We still have this system that could be solar powered. So keeping that idea in view, here's a new standard to bring, and this is where I come back to the Farm Bill, to every provision When we're looking at an obscure provision about counter-cyclical payments, or direct payments, or even SNAP payments, or farmers market support, or all the many, many different things, the question we could ask ourselves to give us a little bit of a guide through the fog is, is this pushing agriculture back onto the sun, or is it leaving it on a fossil fuel basis? That's the standard I think we need to apply. And if we judge everything in the Farm Bill by this, we'll make some progress. Now, let's take the biggest title of all, not the biggest title, the biggest is nutrition, but the commodity title, title number one. Um, How do we judge all that? How do we judge the incentives we're giving our farmers through the way we subsidize agriculture? Um, Well... If we wanted to drive corn and soy and and, and the whole farm belt back onto sun, onto solar, we would encourage two things, diversification and perennialization. These are nature's ways of exploiting solar energy as efficiently as possible. So are we doing that in our incentives? Are we giving farmers incentive to add to the number of crops they grow? Because to the extent we diversify our farms, we need less pesticide, less fertilizer, and we start producing more actual food that people can eat. Because a lot of what we're subsidizing is not exactly food. It's food for our cars in the form of ethanol, and it's food for our animals in the form of feed grains. Um, So that's a very big move. Um, uh, How many different crops, how many perennials you can introduce... And these are not, I'm not talking about diverse farms that are really tiny, necessarily. I mean, I'm not talking about the image of a CSA farm in California or New England. I'm talking about big Midwestern farms. And I'll give you one example of how you could create incentives that would give you a very different model. In Argentina today, there are very large farms, larger than most farms in America, up to 15,000 acres, that are highly diverse where they put cattle on grass, grazing on perennial grasses for five years, and then they plow those fields and plant grain. And they can grow grain for three years without any nitrogen fertilizer because the cattle have built up such fertility in the land. Not only that, when they switch over to grain and they do three different grains for three years, they find that they don't need any herbicides because the weeds that can live in a perennial pasture cannot live in row crops and vice versa. So you see, that is a large-scale way to take the sun and drive the system and force fossil fuel out. Plus you end up with you know wonderful grass-fed beef um, and you've, uh, you've, you've essentially... Created lots of food from sunlight. Um, And we need to move our research agenda toward uh, solar uh... solar powered agriculture we also need to build regional food systems that will exploit solar energy to the extent possible and i also think we need to support solar farming which is to say diversified farming by stimulating demand for its diverse products because if we're going to diversify our farms we need to diversify our diets and there are many ways to do that one of which i would propose and maybe we can talk about it later is we should seriously consider And I'll stop here because I'm running out of time. Um, A federal definition of food, (laughs) which is a more radical idea than it sounds, because there are many things we're supporting that are not food, Uh, and that goes for the uh, SNAP program as well. So, for example, should we define candy and soda as food for the purposes of a nutrition program? uh... i think that's something we need to look at um, and i know it's a very controversial idea but very very important to be considered um, we taxpayers support farmers to the tune of tens of billions of dollars and we have done so since the depression and i think we should continue to do so but we need to ask farmers for something in return for their support we need them to help us with the great national project of dealing with this public health crisis we have around food, and dealing with this environmental crisis we have, too. They have the tools, they have the access to the solar energy to do this. And I think that there is, in the same way they obliged us and gave us an abundance of cheap calories, now that what we're after is nutrition, now that what we're after is real food, um, we can create a set of incentives in the Farm Bill that will take us down that path. And, And if we just work on that piece, solarizing the system, I think you'll see the other things will follow, the environmental benefits and the health benefits. Thank you.
0: Karen?
5: Oh, sure. Okay. me follow that. <laughs> We're ready when you I'm are. I'm the government, and I'm here to help <laughs> in a very incremental way. And I'm also somewhat intimidated because there are experts here, (laughs) and several of them are my very good friends. One is Ann Veneman, former USDA Secretary and Secretary of Agriculture in California who is here, as well as Rich Rominger, who is a former Secretary of Agriculture in California and Deputy Secretary at USDA, and my good friend Glenda Humiston, who has a great job. She is with Rural Development USDA here in California. So she has the money and is doing awesome things to create some of the very systems you're talking about. So, not that I'm intimidated or anything following the great author to talk about the Farm Bill. And now you all know, because I'm very open and honest and transparent, that I am from western Nebraska. You heard the kind of crops that we grow. (laughs) But I'm not going to go there. Because I think it's also important to look at the Farm Bill and California's role in the Farm Bill, because historically we haven't always been the loudest voice. Um, Yes, we do have program crops here, and the specialty crop sector of agriculture tended to sit on the sidelines and watch it. And and probably in the last 15 years started taking a much more active role, and that's a good thing. And part of it is because we saw the health nutrition desires being expressed, and that seemed like it was a good thing to do. Um, But it was also because of parts of the Farm Bill that are very obscure, and why should you care? But things like, we are the port to 40% of the goods that go to other states in this country which means the introduction of invasive species, plant, and animal diseases, we are very vulnerable, and so our partnership with the federal government, which is funded through the Farm Bill, was something that's very important, and our perennial crops, which are huge capital investments that are there for 25, 30, 40 years, are very susceptible to that. So I know that from my time working for a United States senator in Nebraska to then coming to California, where Farm Bill really didn't enter a lot of the discussions, has changed significantly 25 years. And that's a good thing that it has. Because what's on the new USDA dinner plate? It's what we do here. Fruits, vegetables, tree nuts, lean animal and dairy proteins, whole grains. I am from the wine industry. A glass of wine should go with that. But I'm not trying to get it into the school lunch program. So how do we, as a state that is blessed with the number one agricultural productivity in this country as well as one of the most successful ones in the world because of this wonderful climate that we've been given, 400 crops are grown here. That diversity is spectacular and it's because we have the climate to make it possible. We also have the soils and we have the innovative people and we've had the benefit of the research and extension of research results to continually stimulate that kind of innovation to be productive. We also, I would suggest, because the vast majority of our crops are not part of the farm bill, we've been very market-driven. And so our farmers have tended to, re- to react fairly quickly to what the market signals are, sometimes in a very painful kind of way. So that's the setting of how do you, as secretary of this fabulous state diversity 400 crops, 800 commodity groups, um, bring them all together and also reach out to all the stakeholders that have an investment in the farm bill and may not even know that. So what we did was go through this fast-paced um, process that Under Secretary Sandy Schubert headed for us. We, d- we met with over 80 stakeholder groups in a four-month period last year when we had that freaky exercise where people thought there was going to be a farm bill in four months without torturous hearings. Yeah. So we met with over 80 stakeholder groups. We did five listening sessions up and down the state. We took that information and focused our efforts on all the things that we had in common. That there's always going to be outliers, but that if we could focus on all the things that we'd have in common, we might have a chance of getting our large congressional delegation on one page. Now, that's a pipe dream in this. Washington atmosphere, which I'm going to leave completely to my good friend Ken Cook to explain to you. But that's our goal. California delegation could make a difference on a lot of these kinds of things. So I'm just going to run through very quickly for you what came out of that process with very diverse stakeholder input and then we collaborated with the Secretaries of Health and Human Services, the Environmental Protection Agency, Resources Agency, and ourselves to come up with an administration position on the Farm Bill. Obviously food access, health and nutrition, especially in these times, especially when it's the most vulnerable of our population. Children, the elderly, sadly, military families and veterans, you know, we have to continue that. So it's about getting the calories they need to sustain themselves and improving the nutrition that's being offered to have them thrive and achieve their potential. So access was obviously a strong theme from all of the groups that we met with. This protection of our state's. Natural resources and agricultural resources from invasive species, plant, and animal diseases scored very high, and we really encouraged our environmental friends to work with us on that so we're not forced to use more pesticides and do some of the draconian measures that we have to do. Conservation is one that we heard across the board. Conservation practices that we share as a public the cost for the farmers to do we have measurable results by targeting conservation dollars on very unique and specific california environmental challenges one example is money that's targeted through the equip program which Ken will explain to you, which helped helped us on air quality issues in the Central Valley. On any given day, you know, the good news of California is we're spectacular and have this wonderful atmosphere. The bad news is on any given day, either the Central Valley or the L.A. Basin has the nation's worst air quality. And so there's a program to share the cost of swapping out engines. It has has reduced, in a four-year period, nitrous oxide emissions by five and a half tons, which is the equivalent of taking 408,000 vehicles off the road. There is is an investment by the public shared with the growers who have to put up the equal cost of that and getting a measurable environmental outcome. The um, wildlife habitat and some of the conservation programs on working landscapes has created the equivalent of 71 miles of hedgerows in the state, which is now habitat for over 1,500 species of pollinators and wildlife. We have improved water use efficiency by 25% on over 200 billion gallons of water that's used for irrigation. These are measurable outcomes and there's a strong desire to maintain the funding for that and increase it research probably now more than ever has risen as a priority because we know that there are 7 billion people on the globe today, rapidly growing to 9 billion people by the year 2050. We have to nearly double agricultural production of food to feed that population. We already have a billion people a day that don't have enough to eat. So research is how we're going to produce that food on a smaller environmental footprint. Research scored very high. Okay. One thing that we were able to achieve in the 2008 Farm Bill by working together in a coalition of agricultural groups, conservation groups, and food access groups was create a specialty crop title that creates specialty block grant programs, which we've been able to use for a lot of local needs, as well as specialty crop research, organic research, and really raise on the radar screen the need to build local regional food systems. One of the areas that seldom gets the attention that it needs But I really commend Secretary Vilsack for making it the challenge of this farm bill. And he did this two years ago to the Senate Agriculture Committee. And he said, if our farm policy is really working, why do we have the poverty rates that we have in our rural areas? They're some of the worst. And that's where Glenda's work through rural development is really using all those tools to really look at that and using renewable energy and the investment and renewable energy in those rural areas as a way to create good jobs and to have young people want to come back to the farm. They want to have the same quality of life that their colleagues in college have, and so we need to have those good jobs there. But his challenge was we need 100,000 new farmers. We all have heard the statistics of the aging farmer force. And unfortunately, for the last 25, 30 years, because we were so productive and you all as consumers were less interested in this silent delivery of choice and abundance and affordable prices in the marketplace, people haven't wanted to come back to farm. So now, I just saw a statistic today for every five farmers that are over the age of 60, there's one farmer that's 25. I'm happy to say in California those demographics are changing, but it is truly one of the best and most important challenges facing us now. How do we recruit the farmers and the ranchers? How do we make sure that food Production and processing and delivery in our local systems is creating the economic good that we know is possible. And those are where some of the priorities for California have fallen out. And we were very pleased with the collaboration across cabinet. I'm looking at Sandy right now. She did a terrific job. She used to work for Ken. What can I say? So those are some of the priorities, and I hope that I've interjected some of the other titles of the Farm Bill that oftentimes get overlooked, but they all create a package of how do we keep farmers and ranchers on the land and create a safety net to ensure that they do that, how do we do it in the most environmentally sustainable way, and how do we ensure access for all of our citizens to healthy, nutritious food. So thank you.
3: Well, thank you. Dean, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. And Gordon, thank you for, uh, for the introduction uh, and for moderating this panel. Uh, it is a, it's a, Really, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I, I live in California now, and uh, I moved to Marin, uh, and everyone's going to say, oh, of course, um, <laughs> in, in, um, in June. But the thing I have to tell you about the Washington perspective that always bugged me about California is not what you would think. It's strictly speaking related to agriculture, which was when Secretary Vanaman, who was really one of our great secretaries of agriculture, and she's right there, uh, served under President Bush. Uh, and and before her, uh, Deputy Secretary Richard Rominger. Where are you? Uh, whenever someone would be named as a Californian to a high post. The reaction in the Ag Committee was, oh, I don't know. (laughs) Do they really understand agriculture? Right? The number one agriculture state... And uh, the name comes forward, and the first question is. And that tells you a lot about what Michael said, what Karen Ross just said, and and what Ken said. The perspective uh, on the Farm Bill is driven by the members of the Agriculture Committee, uh, and they expect for people to understand agriculture the way they understand it, which is they got on that committee... Uh, to to secure subsidies for their states and congressional districts and to do the horse trading that's needed to get there. I'm not saying some of them don't strongly believe in conservation because they do. I'm not saying that some of them don't have a a very strong commitment to, uh, to nutrition programs because they do. But what drives this debate is how they can continue to secure the billions of dollars that they require because we have built an agriculture not just on petroleum, but also on uh, federal en- engagement, federal involvement. And it's taken lots of different forms over the years, um, but most recently it's been very expensive. I want to talk about what's at stake very quickly in, in four key areas. And my organization uh, is, is engaged with all of these areas. One thing that's at stake uh, is to deal with the problem we're now facing now, the great plow out, yet another one, that is occurring all over the western and northern edges of our Corn Belt. We have 95 million acres plus acres planted to corn now, and the reason that's grown from 70 million to 95 million in a fairly short period of time is the ethanol boom. We're putting corn into our gas tanks. Uh, we are not paying attention to conservation priorities. We're making the same mistake, but with new technology, we've made time and time again an extended production of certain crops into areas which they're not suitable for. And we've had crop breeding that's made corn and soybeans more tolerant of dry weather, but we are still now in areas plowing up grasslands, plowing up conservation investments in many cases, and the stories are coming in every day directly to us at Environmental Working Group and in the newspapers out uh, in the middle part of the country of what a tragedy this is going to be for our wildlife and for our water quality. And that is in large measure driven by the programs in the Farm Bill, which affect hundreds of millions of acres of land out of the billion or so in private land in this country. The most important environmental program uh, legislation that this Congress is likely to consider uh, over the next uh, year, and probably for the next few years, given the gridlock in Washington, is the farm bill because if it isn 't reauthorized uh, there 's kind of a Jurassic park mechanism that 's engaged, and we go back to the 1930s and we have to try and live under those laws and the ag-, ag interests keep that provision in the law for the express purpose of scaring people about the Jurassic park implications of going back to the 30s and the law that we 'd have there so this big this great plowout the only thing that stands between the that and sustainability really is the the opportunity to invest billions of dollars in conservation programs. And my first point is, the programs that are in place and they're they've they've all got their warts, they've all got their wrinkles. But the programs that are in place, like the Environmental Quality Incentives Program that Secretary Ross mentioned, and I just have to put in a plug for Secretary Ross and Undersecretary Schubert, you have in this uh, state. Uh, An administration in your agriculture department that is very open, very willing, and very eager to hear from everybody and to fight for some of the things that will benefit all Californians, no matter how that might create problems within some of the... Uh, the uh, traditionally agricultural sectors. So that's point one. Outsiders made these big conservation programs happen. They are multi-billion dollar programs, and it was only because people from environmental groups and conservation groups got engaged in the mid-1980s that we got those. Nothing is going to happen if you don't step in and intervene. Uh, two, what else is at stake? Uh, the nutrition assistance programs that Ken described and, and, and that uh, Karen spoke to, this is the number one priority of the Environmental Working Group is protecting the SNAP program. We cannot We cannot let this program be demonized on the campaign trail we can't let low-income people be demonized. We can't pe- let people who've lost their job be demonized because they're willing to accept and need to accept in many cases because it's their only income in, so- in half the household's benefits from the federal government so that they can put food on the table. This is a brutally means-tested program, brutally means-tested. If you are, I, always, I have the family of three in my head. If you make more than about $24,000 in a family of three and have any meaningful assets you're too rich for the food stamp program your benefits run out in this program usually in somewhere in between week two and three it's about a buck and a half a meal per day and half of the beneficiaries are kids we have to fight for this program in the farm bill. am I out of time? No. No, 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 no. you're not out of time. I'd like to thank the members of the academy Speak louder, Ken. All right. <laughs> I can, I'm capable of it. Um, three, um, uh, the, the program, now I have two, two more. <laughs> We're strongly supporting programs that will protect the very minimal so far and f- fledgling programs to try and inject healthy eating into the Farm Bill as a legitimate concern of public policy. Let me just give you one example because it was referenced before. Uh, the, the fruit and vegetable snack program. Now I sound like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, this is a program that when they did the pilot studies of introducing fruit and vegetable snacks, this is not a big part of your meal, just a snack in the morning and in the afternoon or make it available during the day, they piloted all three. Some kids in these programs had never seen a a pear before. The, The evaluators came back. They'd never seen kiwi fruit. They'd never seen pineapple. They had no experience with fresh fruit or celery or carrots. This is written in the evaluations in these schools. Now, you mean to tell me that the richest country in the world with all of the health-related problems that Michael spoke to so eloquently, can't afford to get to take a chance and hook kids on fruits and vegetables when they're in school, we should be spending billions of dollars on this program. <laughs> billions. It's outrageous. And and then I want to get my – so we're working on that, and I hope we'll all get to – we'll get to chat about that some more. And then reform of our subsidy system. Um, uh, We have spent a quarter of a trillion dollars since 1995 on farm subsidies, crop insurance, disaster payments, and conservation a quarter of, better than a quarter of a trillion dollars. Now, I'm not going to suggest for one moment uh, that this in any way resembles welfare, because that would be manifestly unfair to welfare. Uh, (laughs) And it's not a a buyout either, because buyouts are repaid. Welfare is means-tested. It's usually for a temporary period, and it's for the the least among us economically, the ones most challenged. Bailouts are repaid, mostly. This $260 billion is gone, is gone. Now, that's not including the food stamp monies that we spent. That's just the money we've spent in agriculture. And... If you went to the Environmental Working Group's website, ewg.org, you can see who got each and every one of those $260 billion because we filed Freedom of Information Act requests and found out the names of all the subsidy recipients, and we posted them online. Now, when you look at that, the first question that comes to most people's mind is, this does not look like the investment portfolio I would have picked in my food and farm system if I'd had If I'd been asked, I'd invest in something that looks very, very different. One cotton farmer in 2004 received $2 million. If you get $2 million, you hire your own lobbyist. (laughs) Right? That's the same amount of money we spent for the entire federal program devoted to organic agricultural research in 2004. One cotton farmer. Now, without going into lots of details, I just want to finish by saying that there's tremendous power in outsiders being involved in all of these things. By outsiders, I mean people who eat and pay taxes. Now, <laughs> I'm going to go a step further and say, and you're from California. You must get involved in this debate it's easy to do. We'll talk about ways to do that later. If you don't, I can guarantee you we'll get more of the same or worse. There's a bullseye on the food stamp program to cut it. And politically, it's been demonized, as I say. There's a bullseye on the conservation programs to take money out of them. And they are so valuable to California and many other states. We should be getting a lot more money. We get 2.5% of all the conservation money. And we are much more than 2.5% of the agricultural economy in this country. We should be getting more of the conservation money. And the final point is that when, when Gordon Rouser was in the, uh, at the Council on Environmental Quality... No, Council on Economic advisers. He wrote a report that had, and he reminded me of this today, had as its finishing section one little paragraph referencing the fact that the Prince of Liechtenstein received $2 million in federal farm payments. In,
0: 19, in 1986 money. In
3: 1986 money. And we remembered the uproar that came from that story in the early 1990s, when we saw money siphoned away from conservation programs and money being cut from or threatened in the food stamp program and everything else we cared about at that time, we remembered the hubbub over the Prince of Liechtenstein. And that was one of the reasons we decided to file Freedom of Information Act requests and find out where all our taxpayer money was going. And when you look and you don't like it and you don't speak up, well, it's your fault if you get more of the same. Thank you.
0: we'll now open it up for questions but in the meantime if the panelists have questions for one another please feel free I would love to ask
4: the panelists uh, I thought I was falling into your disease down here with the mic Uh, whether in whether we haven't sort of agreed with each other which I I thought we were going to have to arm wrestle a little bit but it it sounds to me let me state the priorities the way I heard them Uh, food access better food in a way that doesn't harm the environment actually helps it and research to know how to do all those things better and I just think that's remarkable coming from four very different perspectives to, uh, to get
3: that close to each other
5: I guess we're done everybody's probably done that,
3: <laughs> well and we're all from California I mean so yes a little, little. We don't get it, I guess. But you're right. You're, ex- you're, exact- you're exactly right. And, you know, if you, when you poll the American public, that, that's what you find out, uh, that the people don't like what we have. They'd like to see some changes. Uh, people are very sympathetic and, and supportive of the need to, to protect uh, those who depend on food stamps.
5: And I think uh, one of the things that's driving that is that I have never seen in all the years I've worked on Farm Bill a consensus that direct payments are gone. Now, what's happening by some of the commodity groups at the national level is that they're not looking at as money to be reinvested in, in other ways that can serve the public good. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Stuart Wolf is here tonight, and he said, if we put that money into research, think of what we could accomplish. That's not necessarily what's going to happen. It's about how do we create the alternative safety net, revenue insurance, and those are the kinds of things that will get very complex, which lead people into the usual backroom kinds of deals. And so that that's one thing that creates this opportunity that could be more transformative, but it's going to take a lot of engagement by a lot of different voices to keep it out where the sunshine can shine.
2: I would just add that... Uh this process, to, to reiterate what Ken said, this process really depends on our passivity to continue. And that this is a very closely held process. It's a very small number of people that are not representative of much more than a few big farm states and uh, in the Midwest. And that they are terrified of uh, the politicization of this issue. Just to raise the profile of the Farm Bill issue, Uh, will have a dramatic effect. And um, we have seen um, the, uh, you know, we had this episode with Pink Slime uh, last week. Did you guys hear about Pink Slime? this, this shook agribusiness uh, very, very deeply because this thing came out of nowhere. This is an additive in hamburgers um, made from ammonia-treated treated waste, wa- uh, waste, waste products, beef waste products.
5: Connective tissue,
2: Mike. Connective tissue, <laughs> sorry. Um, that is in all the hamburgers, all the ground meat, or was until last week. And uh, by, by virtue of a very fast uh, bit of social networking, um, it disappeared, virtually disappeared. Uh, and the industry was so upset, in fact, that, the, uh, that uh, the Secretary of Agriculture was called out to Iowa to defend the company that makes this stuff. I, don't, I can't remember of another time a Secretary of Agriculture has uh, played that role for the meat industry. Uh, and, and the governor of Iowa has called for an investigation of the smearing of pink slime. I didn't know you could <laughs> smear slime. But but the it's point its best is, use <laughs> the point is that that sunlight as karen suggested is very powerful and Some people don't know how to intervene in this issue, because it is so damn complicated. And uh, I was talking with someone who works for for Ken just a little while ago. and, And she pointed out that simply calling your representative and say, you want more healthy food, you want more environmentally sustainable food, is all you need to do. All you need to do. It's just the fact that if the perception takes hold in Washington that people are paying attention, The same old, same old will not survive.
5: Michael, can I add something? Because transparency in the food system, I think, is what people are yearning for. And quite truthfully, our farmers would love to reconnect with consumers. We have gotten so far apart. And what a shame to have farmers and eaters so far apart. But for the last 40 years with, you know, parents raised their children. I was one of them, you know, go to college and go do something else. I can't recommend this necessarily. So what happened? The silent number of farmers did exactly what the signals were to them to do. They are so productive, and they are very innovative, and they've delivered safe, abundant, choices in the market and now we get to engage in what the trade-offs are. You talked about trade-offs. That's a good thing. People want to know why why is this dozen of eggs a dollar fifty and this dozen's eight fifty? Well one was with this set of practices. You don't have to apologize about that. Just explain it so people understand what they're buying and can make that choice. And I think we all care very much about preserving choice for the consumers, which also creates choice for the farmers and how they want to farm
2: yeah I couldn't agree more I think farmers are very eager to partake in this new marketplace that they don't like a system if you're a commodity farmer where essentially you sell all whatever you grow to one buyer who dictates the price to you nobody likes that you feel powerless under those circumstances and they see um, this new marketplace opening up uh, to connect directly with consumers and uh, and and more money stays on the you know comes to the farm when that happens so I think there is an opportunity to bring farmers into this conversation, and, um, uh, and we're, we're seeing it. Even the Farm Bureau uh, yesterday issued this fascinating uh, little study saying that um, direct uh, what they're calling retail agriculture, farmers selling directly to retailers. Uh, is up to seven billion dollars, and they realize, "Wow, this is a this is a serious category. Maybe we should support this kind of thing."
5: And, and it, it's not even by geography because of the internet. This is farmers any place being able to have that connection to tell their story and create identity, so that it also plays into trade and export markets.
4: One of the nice developments in the school nutrition programs, which were not are part of the, are not part of the farm bill, is uh, is the growth of farm to school, farm to preschool, farm to college. And uh, and part of that is to get healthier food. Part of it is to cut down on transportation and all of of those problems. But part of it is just to connect kids to farms, Mm -hmm. and uh, it works wonderfully.
0: Right. I think it's important also to keep in mind, focusing on the political power elite, the nutrition program wouldn't be there but for the agricultural interests in the Midwest wanting it to be there. Why did they want it to be there? The US government was carrying huge public stocks, and they had to increase demand to eliminate those stocks, or at least have those stocks be purchased through some other channel. Secondly, the conservation program that exists within the bills wouldn't have happened but for Midwest farmers wanting to control the supply. And the most direct way of controlling the supply was controlling the land that was being utilized to produce the crops. So now that they've invited other interests into the bill, they have to deal with how well those other interests are articulated as, as we go forward. Uh, but at the end of the day, the commodity groups, uh, the program crops in particular, and the Midwest uh, elected officials the senate in particular are going to control the agenda for the time being uh, unless there's a serious effort on the part of society as a whole now one question there's a number i've got a huge stack of questions here uh, the first question michael uh... do you believe in consumer sovereignty uh... in particular how do you explain what's happening throughout asia with regard to as their incomes <coughs> increase they demand higher and higher quality protein through meat consumption in particular?
2: Do I believe in consumer sovereignty? So I, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. Um, you know, I, I, I often say we need to vote with our forks. And, um, and that decision, that vote, although we also need to vote with our votes, I think the, these issues have to be attacked from both sides. Um, I, and by that I mean that you need to conceive of your purchasing decisions as not a simple matter of uh, your desire as a consumer, but with a full understanding that that choice makes a certain world, uh, leads to certain kinds of, of production, uh, is a creative decision. And so that when it comes to meat eating, um, that choice is is... is uh, there are many, many different ways to do it. There is first the decision to eat less meat, which is of enormous importance environmentally. but then within meat eating, there is the decision to support this food chain or that food chain so uh, I think the what I always uh you know wish for in in the consumer is is merely to exercise that vote with a very high level of consciousness uh, of the effects the implications of that decision um, and uh I I care less where people come out on that decision, whether they're going to eat meat or not eat meat or eat grass-fed meat or conventional meat, but merely that they be conscious because it has a huge uh, effect on how we use this world. Uh, Ken, a question for you. Uh, Can
0: you speak to the debate discussion of the SNAP recipients buying unhealthy processed foods leading to SNAP becoming a corporate subsidy to big food? I was afraid There's of a va- that. couple value judgments in that. That's not my question, by the way.
4: I was afraid of that question. Uh, let me give you a lawyer's answer. The answer is yes and no. Uh, I am very eager, as is the panel, to see the SNAP program uh, encourage, promote uh, healthier eating, and. Uh, It was started as an anti-hunger program. It now has more work to do. And the program needs to stay current if it's going to have our support. And it desperately needs our support, as everyone has acknowledged on the panel today. My organization took a very carefully reasoned, I hope correctly, uh, position against imposing uh, limitations on what people could buy with SNAP benefits. And our reasoning was that we thought it was important for the government to be committed, not simply to target the most vulnerable people but to be committed across the board why are there cokes and pepsi's in vending machines in government buildings why are they on military installations when we're hearing that so many people in the military can't fight because they're overweight you can imagine a whole slew of a panoply of programs that would commit the government uh, and, and all of us to being thoughtful, as Michael would say, I guess, uh, on whether or not to drink sodas. And we thought it was not right. We thought it was unfair to, uh, to target only low-income people. So that was where we came out. It's a tough debate. I think you can talk about it for a long time. I'm not sure one, one side or the other is right. But it, uh, that's, that's where we came out.
0: Okay, the next is for you, Karen. Um, is the farm bill the best legislation to house the SNAP under? Mm. If not, where?
5: Well, I'm one of those people I think it is because um, it, it keeps people connected to food comes from farming. And if you had a farm bill done in isolation and a, a SNAP bill done in isolation, um, you might have even more serious unintended consequences. So I do believe that the Farm Bill is about how do we have a population of people who are out there growing food and getting it to folks in need and keeping that connection. I think it I think for me the farm bill but that's because I've been around it way too long. But it does make sense as a whole system and farming as part of a system and I think that if you got too disconnected from we need farmers and good policy to keep farmers farming and the tools to do that then taking SNAP out of that program would be another disconnect that we already have such a strong disconnect between folks now. Okay, fine. Inarticulate answer, but that's Thank how you. I feel. Thank
0: you. Uh, this is for you, Ken. Ken Cook. Uh, by coincidence, the campus is also hosting the Libertarian Republican presidential candidate, <laughs> Ron Paul, tonight. <laughs> this begs the following question. Is flawed policy better than no policy? Laughter And now's the question. As someone who believes in food justice, shall I be supporting Ron Paul or Santorum?
3: <laughs> well, fortunately, I have really struggled with this question myself. <laughs> and I think they both still have a very good shot at the nomination. So I. And they think that, too. (laughs) And I don't want to say anything that tips the balance. (laughs) I I want them to stay in this race as long as they can possibly stay in this race.
0: (laughs) It's good for America. Okay, well, now I'm going to give you a question you have to answer. (laughs) How does the Farm Bill support small-scale local farmers, if at all? Is urban farming slash community gardens even recognized in the bill? Ken?
3: Um, there are two parts to that answer. One is that these commodity programs pay everybody who grows the program crops, no matter how big you are. So, And there are pretty much no effective limits on the amount of money you can get. So if you look at our database, you'll see checks for $1,000 per year or less, a few hundred dollars in some cases, where someone has a small part of a farm and they'll get a little bit of money. Um, I don't know in, in every case, no one knows in every case, just how vital a few thousand dollars might be to a small farmer growing uh, one of the program crops. But the guess is it's not as as important as uh, uh, you know, to their livelihood as their off-farm jo- job that supports their farming habit, as my uncle used to call it. Um, there are some... But seventy 60% of all the farmers in this country get no subsidies. And of the beneficiaries of that quarter... Uh, trillion I mentioned earlier, 70% of uh, that money goes to the top 10%, the largest beneficiary. So it's very highly concentrated. So t- the whole thing skewed, the commodity programs. But there are some programs in the Farm Bill that do provide important support, and we should be investing more in them. It's pennies on the dollar, really. Uh, for the most part, farmers who are in urban areas or on the edges of cities and are trying to develop uh, a system that provides food directly to producers, uh, the, the point that Michael raised, uh, or to consumers, the point that Michael raised, support farmers' markets, uh, market that way, uh, maybe even get into small retail, uh, wholesale and retail chains, uh, for a very modest amount of money in support of in- infrastructure, organic transition funds, which the conservation programs are a major source of uh, support for, for a very modest amount of money, we can, we can help that movement flourish. Uh, and again, we're not talking about huge Sums nothing near what we 're talking about in the co- uh, commodity programs we 're looking at proposals now to spend uh, well this past year we spent eleven almost eleven billion dollars on crop insurance and I know none of you have ever heard of crop insurance uh, you know when, Sc- uh, when, when Scalia asked the question in the in the Supreme Court uh, hearing of, about whether the government could compel uh, people who were compelled to buy health insurance also compel them to buy broccoli. You know, the question in my mind: I wanted to know if broccoli was covered by crop insurance. It's not, and, and it's not. Um, but a hundred crops are. Crops have better health insurance coverage than people. Still, <laughs> and it's single payer. <laughs>
0: The next question is, how about protecting farmland from being converted to non-agricultural uses?
5: Um, There is a particular program under the conservation title for farm and ranch land protection. It's always a target to take the little bit of money that's there out, um, and there needs to be more attention paid to that as well as helping to transition it to make sure that we're helping new and beginning and disadvantaged farmers get started. But it's a very small program, and I'm looking at Rich. It, it's less than $17 million. I mean, it's just it's such a pittance of...
3: It's a very small money. Yeah. and it's always attacked. And, you know, there's a lot of pressures on these farmers, development. To, to development pressures to to sell their land. And um, I have to say, uh, again, let me thank uh, Richard Romiter now that I live and privileged to live in Marin, um, two things stand out. Just how much agricultural land has been preserved in perpetuity because farmers decided themselves that they wanted to start uh, a land trust that would protect it. Uh, And secondly, uh, if you had to guess what percentage of farmland in this country is certified organic, what would your guess be? It's it's about six-tenths of one percent. In Marin, it's 11.5%. So, once again, these crazy Californians, what is up with that?
5: It's especially timely right now because of the aging of the population and the land that's being held primarily by the matriarch of the family that will be transitioning to the next generation and usually of the siblings, if you're lucky, there's one in the family that wants to farm and they've got three or four that live all across the country and the spouses of the children who have fond memories of the farm, spouses are looking at return on investment and where else they could put that money. It could be a sea change in what happens to that land if we don't have more focus on this huge transition that is just about to take place.
2: Let me add just one thing to it. There's another way to attack that problem, of course, and that is that is provisions in the Farm Bill to support local food systems. And the more you can create opportunities for people to stay in agriculture near metropolitan areas, they're special Uh, a very special case. And there are some very good proposals coming, I think, in the Senate bill. And if you want to look at one take on it, there's a a bill introduced by uh, Representative Chelly Pingree of Maine and Sherrod Brown in the Senate that um, is a a very um, comprehensive and imaginative and powerful set of proposals to support. It's called the um, Local Farms Food and Jobs Act. And a lot of this is going to get incorporated into the Senate version of the bill and is really worth fighting for because it will do a lot uh, for organic farmers, for local farmers. And uh, you can go on her website and check it out, Chili Pengri.
3: And it's only $100 million a year. Now, I think she should have asked for more, but that's, I'm a, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a lobbyist. But but and, I to help. But, um, and we're, we'll push for more. But it, that goes to the point: for a modest investment, this is not mon- none—not a penny of that money will go directly to any of these small farmers as a payment. It's all supporting infrastructure and support programs and, and, and so forth.
0: Is is there any chance that the new farm bill will will require
3: labeling of genetically modified food? Did
5: you plant that question?
3: You did. You, you, you know, you're getting more suspicious, Karen, over time. Um, no, I did not. Uh, there's no chance. Exactly, it won't be in the front. Right. No chance.
5: Yeah.
2: There, but if, you, if that's an issue you're interested in, there is a campaign to compel the FDA. To label genetically modified food that, that has garnered a million signatures just in the last couple months. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and that's probably the place to push I mean, rather than a, the Farm Bill Also, in the initiative in fact that's, that uh, probably
5: uh, will qualify for the ballot.
2: In California. In California, ballot That's measure. where the authority lies.
3: Yeah, that's right. With and, the FDA. and I'm proud to say right. Environmental Working Group sub- supporters provided over 10% of those signatures.
0: Wow. Yeah. No. Next question. Where do the farm workers fit in this discussion of the farm bill effects and reform? Karen? Um, yeah,
5: and we, we definitely reached out to the farm worker community and their representatives as one of our stakeholder groups. Um, not enough. Um, And when we do look at it, well, there's discussion right now of should that be where there's some sort of, if we don't get immigration reform, some sort of um, just guest worker program put into the Farm Bill. But where we have focused on it is through the Rural Development Program for the housing, transportation, and infrastructure to support people. But there's also, through the disadvantaged farmers, you know, one of the best things that happens, and it's a great California story, are farm workers who came here working in the fields as employees and then become farm owners or start their own farming operation on sure. leased land. And there are targeted programs for that population to make sure that they can get some tools for that kind of startup. But there's, there's not enough partnership because I think that the farm worker community tends to not think that's their place to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And we've really reached out to their representatives to make sure that we can advocate their needs as well.
0: I see the, there's a general question here, um, namely, as individuals, what is our best avenue for participation in the farm bill reform, and what what the biggest to positive change what are the biggest changes or obstacles to positive changes. <laughs>
2: Well, for starters, um, to get involved, go to the Environmental Working Group website, sign up to get their alerts. Um, That's a very useful thing to do because you'll know key moments to intervene. And if you go to my website, uh, there's a bunch of other groups that I list that are very active on this issue. That um, if you sign up, you'll know a key moment to place that call to your representative or your senator. And that that really does make a difference. Um, The more I I talk to people in Washington about this, the more I realize they pay attention. Mm -hmm. Lobbyists, lobbying money rules uh, completely when there is no public input. But you need to remember what do they want all that money for? To buy your votes. So if they if they realize an issue has a public constituency that people really care, that can drown out political money. So um, it's it sounds old-fashioned. It sounds kind of lame, but it's not at all. So um, find out what's going on. Follow the debate. There'll be some key moments at the end of April. This Senate there'll be a Senate bill marked up. Uh, let's see what's in that. And then September 30th, this Farm Bill expires. And at that moment, all the good programs we've been talking about will disappear unless we raise our voices. Let me add a plug for uh, California Food Policy Advocates website.
4: It also will have alerts that will keep you up to date on the Farm Bill. And the Food Research and Action Center uh, out of Washington is really on top of it the other part of the question is what what's the opposition i think the opposition is uh, is fairly obvious if you looked at the uh, proposed budget that came out of the house uh, last week it would uh, absolutely decimate all these programs and it's really just as simple
0: as that listen we have we have time for a few remaining questions uh, and this goes to you Karen If there is a great need for recruiting farmers, given the demographics you briefly described, I'm adding that to the question, (laughs) uh, what incentives are being offered to individuals who are starting a small business farm?
5: Um... Not enough specifics, although there are a couple programs through the Farm Services Agency for startup savings accounts, and there is actually a program that has not been fully utilized to work with an aging farmer who wants to do a transition to a young farmer, as isolated examples. Um, And where we're starting to see a lot of the most exciting work Um, is through block grants and my friend Craig McNamara, who's president of the State Board of Food and Agriculture, got one of our block grants to create the California Farm Academy. So it's not that there's a whole um, menu of incentives that are currently there, but there are opportunities for education, mentorship, apprenticeships, um, and then the Farm Service Agency programs that Val Dulcini and Glenda's trying to help me. Do you have a specific?
0: Starttofarm.com. No. Start
5: oh, thank you. There's And it's a fabulous website, starttofarm.com. Gov. Gov. Dot gov. And this is through the Know a Farmer, Know Your Food program that crosses all across the different programs at USDA, pulling all of the information into one place. And it's being managed through the Ag Library, right? It is a fabulous website for anyone who wants to know about any programs that could lead to low-interest loans or grant programs. And so it's a one-place to go. Um, And I've seen other states use state dollars because there are other states that actually have general fund dollars. That wouldn't be California. (laughs) And they're creating some incentive programs. So I'm hopeful that we can get to that point in California.
0: One of the the major entries to barrier on young entrepreneurs who want to become farmers is the programs themselves. The programs have the ultimate effect of increasing the value of land. And to become an effective farmer, you have to control either rent or purchase the land. And the value of that land is dramatically higher, sourced directly with a subsidization in the programs. And another thing to keep in mind, which we haven't talked about, we we shouldn't... Uh, Walk away with the perception that California agriculture hasn't benefited from federal programs as well. It's uh, as we real, we all know, certainly the cotton <laughs> program. Uh, uh, but there's also the federal government involved in water subsidies. So I thought it would be appropriate to quote a poem that was written many years ago about the subsidies from the federal government and specifically the controls that existed uh within the San Joaquin Valley of land and this poem was written by Kenneth bolding who was hired as an economist by the state of California and ultimately quit and this is why he quit all benefits that are dispersible should perhaps be non-reimbursable but people should be made to pay for the benefits that come their way unless we want to subsidize the good, the needy, or the wise. It would be well to be quite sure just who are the deserving poor, or else the state-supported ditch may serve the undeserving rich. Thank you very much.